Well, I'm glad you've chosen to be at Wilshire today, and I hope by the end of worship and your time with us, you are just as glad that you came. It's a blessing to be together today. It has been a wonderful and busy week of ministry at Wilshire, and I hope that you were able to be part of that. We talk a lot about how important it is to be together, and it is important to be together, and, but church does not just consist of what we do in this building. Church is about who we are, how we serve, and there has been a lot of that going on in the last week, so thank you for everyone who's been part of that. <clears throat> that consists of our uh, pantry giveaway. Uh, Thursday evening, about 20 of us traveled down to Amber, Oklahoma to enjoy dinner together. We did it to celebrate David Hartman, and David Hartman was too sick to go, and we went without him. I think David's still too sick to be here. He may be watching online. David, thank you for having a birthday and inviting us to Amber. We had fun. Uh, so thank you if you got to do that. It was a great evening. And then yesterday, yesterday was Karen Share. And I don't know if you've ever been here to see that or be a part of it. It's a wonderful day. Um, Lacey Rice works with that and uh, also our school supply giveaway and lots of other people help her organize that. Uh, but if you had been here yesterday, uh, you would have seen Michael Barnett making pancakes. That alone was worth the trip to the church building. Um, but before I even made it to the church building, Bill Rice is standing out in the cold, bundled up, waving at traffic, getting people to come in here. And then our church building was filled with people from our community getting gifts, getting food, kids making crafts for Christmas. Um, trust me, you're making a difference in life. Amen. Ruthie came and told me about an older lady who was in our church building yesterday who was sitting there, I think she was sitting there, or she was standing in the foyer, and just tears coming down her eyes. And when Ruthie asked her, what she was thinking, she said, I'm just praising God that now I have something to give my grandkids. So you may not see the impact of things like that every day, but I promise you, your ministry and your generosity and your efforts are making a difference. So I am grateful you're at worship with us today, but I'm even more thankful that our service to God is even more than just what we do here. So thank you for that. Well, over the past three weeks, Jim has reminded us of a very important message that you actually find in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Remember there, day six of creation, God says, let us make man in our image. And it says, in the image of God created he them, male and female. You were created to be an image bearer of the Creator. And so over the past few weeks, Jim has been reminding us that that is true instead of what we are told by the surrounding culture. That we are more than, in Jim's beautiful, ornate rhetoric, we are more than a sack of protoplasm. But that's true, that you are more than what other people think about you. It doesn't matter what your greatest enemy 
It doesn't, make, it doesn't matter what your, what your colleagues at work say. Genesis 1 says you were made in the image of God, not what they say you are. And you were made to be more than a moneymaker. You're not just some cog in a machine to produce some capitalistic output. Genesis 1 says you were made in the image of God. So, it doesn't matter what you've heard or what you've been told or what culture teaches you. God says you are an image bearer of His. And that should change how you see yourself and how we see each other. It's not just that God made me as an image bearer of His. He made you as an image bearer of His. And so how I talk to you, how I treat you, how I serve you is all impacted by that same truth found in Genesis chapter 1. There's not a person in this building, there's not a person in our community, there's not a person on this planet for whom Genesis 1, 26 is not true. You were made as an image bearer of God. So what I want to tell you this morning and focus our attention on is this message. You are more than what your greatest failure in life suggests you are. Something tells me I'm not the only person this morning who needs to be reminded of that. Everyone here can point to something somewhere at some time in your past where you have failed. And Satan likes to replay that tape, that highlight or rather low light reel of your life as if that is who you are and that's what has defined you some of us have failed in spectacular ways in ways that have actually been printed on headlines of newspapers because i know some of your stories and some of us have failed in ways that maybe nobody else we think is aware of. Some of us have failed in ways that have hurt lots and lots of people. And some of us have failed in ways that we think only hurts ourselves. Maybe you failed in ways that were actually celebrated by people around you, that your failures with God are seen as some celebratory action of culture. And yet some of us have failed in ways that have simply led to humiliation. For some of us, failure didn't lead to long-term consequences. But for others, you wake up every day facing the consequences of your worst decision. You're reminded of it when you stare in the mirror. You're reminded of it when you go to work. You're reminded of it when you sit at home. If you look around this room, I promise you, there is not a person here who does not live with some sense of failure. And we have a tendency in life to believe that somehow our failures negate the truth that Scripture begins with. That you were made as an image bearer of God. 
And our, our failures certainly mean that we didn't live up to that mission. But our value and our significance and our purpose did not change when we failed. The truth of Genesis 1 still remains, I am an image bearer of God. Amen. I think maybe intellectually we know that. I mean, we still pick up our Bible and we read that, and we listen to Jim, and you listen to me, and you listen to other people tell you you're an image bearer of God, but something somewhere, Satan somehow whispers in your ear, yeah, but. So I want you to hear this clearly this morning. You are more than what your greatest failure suggests you are. So there are two truths I want to focus on. And I'll illustrate this with two stories. Truth number one, God does not dismiss our failures. Now, Sometimes in a sermon like this, a preacher, a motivational speaker, they'll walk in a room and they'll say, look, whatever you've done doesn't matter. It's in the past. God overlooks that. Well, God does not dismiss our failures. Scripture doesn't let us off that easy because God is holy and God has holy expectations. But God does not define us by our failures. In fact, what I want you to see this morning is that God sees us for the redemptive purpose for which He created us in spite of our failures. It's that second point that I think we have a hard time swallowing. In fact, it's that second point that I know our culture can't grasp. And I know this because it's become a national pastime to rummage through any and everyone's past, to find that moment, that failure, and that misstep to discredit anything we don't like about them today. We've even coined a term and split into political parties over cancel culture. Heard that term? If we can find just one tweet, one social media post, one high school yearbook photo, then I can highlight that moment in their past, that greatest failure, and regardless of anything you've said or done since then, or anything you stand for today, I can say, sit down, be quiet, here's your failure. Now, for our oldest members, aren't you glad there was no social media and cell phone cameras when you were in college. Amen? But that's how our culture works. Now listen, I am not dismissing the hypocrisy of culture. Someone who pretends to be one thing, and it is clear they've not been consistently that. I'm not dismissing that. And I'm not talking about true injustice and abuse that people just want to brush under the rug. Those things should be exposed. What I'm talking about are those instances where someone truly failed and has demonstrably turned their life around, and yet their past is employed as a weapon against their present. Scripture says God does not work that way. Scripture does not teach cancel culture. Scripture teaches redemptive salvation. 
And we as God's people cannot buy into the ridiculousness of what culture tries to do to people who have failed and who have tried to turn their life around. Redemption is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not, do not buy into the lie that people cannot be redeemed in Jesus Christ. Two stories for you. In the spring, at a time when kings go off to war, you know how that story unfolds? Some of you do. It's the story found in 2 Samuel chapter 12, chapter 11. It's the story of David. You know David from your Old Testaments. The youngest son of Jesse, the shepherd, the boy who rose to fame by playing music for a crazy king, the gentleman who wrote a large portion, we think, of our book of Psalms, the young man who stepped forward when all of Israel's army was too cowardice at this giant Philistine named Goliath. That David, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, sits atop his palace in the springtime watching a young, beautiful woman who's not his wife, taking a bath. And the story of 2 Samuel chapter 11 unfolds with quick snapshots of verbs that tell you just how badly things go. He saw, he sent, he lay with, he said, he sent, he sent. And by the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, this hero, King David, is a disaster. This is not, in 2 Samuel 11, a momentary lapse in judgment. This is an epic failure of moral character, of self-control, an abuse of power, and obstruction of justice. And 2 Samuel 11 moves from a lustful glance to an adulterous relationship to conspiracy and lies and murder and cover-up. David sees Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. And David sends a messenger. And that messenger tells him, that is the wife of Uriah. And David should have said, I should have never looked. But he doesn't. He sent for her. He lay with her. And listen, brothers and sisters, if you're the king of a nation, and there's a woman bathing on her housetop, and you send for her, what choice does she have when the king says, I want you? There is every indication that David probably raped Bathsheba. You may say, well, that makes me uncomfortable. Well, he murders her husband. What is rape if you're willing to murder? And he brings this woman in and he sleeps with her. And he sends her back and then... It's almost as if the writer of 2 Samuel is reminding you, David is not in full control because while he looked and he sent and he said and he lay with, it sneaks into the text that she said, she sent word, I'm pregnant. And David, you've read this story, or if you haven't, you need to read it, 2 Samuel chapter 11 this upstanding man of God to this point, 
does everything wrong. Instead of stopping and repenting, he sends for Uriah, invites Uriah home and says, why don't you spend some time with your wife? He's trying to cover up the crime. And Uriah proves to be more faithful a man of God than David because Uriah says that the ark is out, the people of God are out, I can't come home and enjoy time with my wife. And he sleeps on the porch of the palace. And David, who can't get over the fact that he can't cover up his sin, then sends to Joab the commander and says, Hey, i got a special mission for Uriah. I want you to send him to the front of the line, pull back, leave him as a sitting duck, and let him die. He's now involved in murder. And then when Uriah dies, David gets to look like a hero. This poor soldier's wife, at home and pregnant, and he takes her in. Don't we have a great king? No, you don't. But the remarkable thing about the story of David in 2 Samuel is that's not the end of his story. Nathan shows up, Nathan the prophet, probably about a year has gone by. Again, this was not some momentary lapse in judgment. This was an ongoing conspiracy and crime and cover-up. And David thinks he's got it made until some prophet walks in and tells him this sob story about a rich man who's having a party, has plenty of sheep, but he steals the sheep of a poor man, cooks the thing for dinner, and David gets irate. How could that rich man do that? And Nathan, in essence, says, you tell me, because that's what you did. But David's life is not defined by his greatest failures. The remarkable thing about the story of David is if you just go back a few chapters, 2 Samuel chapter 7, before this moment of failure, five chapters earlier, God said, David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. And even after the moral failure of David, when David repents, God keeps that promise. Now listen, I told you there were two messages. One, God doesn't dismiss our failures. David suffered for his failure. That child that he and Uriah, or that he and Bathsheba conceived, died. David's own children get involved in incest and murder and intrigue and rebellion. David's life is a mess, but brothers and sisters, listen, God did not forget his promise to David. David was not defined by his biggest failure. God saw the redemptive purpose in David's, in David's life, and he kept the promise he made. You know how I know that? Because the very first verse of the book of Matthew... The genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. God said, I'm going to establish your throne forever, David. And Genesis, uh, Matthew chapter 1, reminds you God kept that promise. God did not cancel David. 
God redeemed David. And it may be that David is the one who wrote the psalm that my son read. Happy is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Because God does not define us by our greatest failure. Genesis 1 did not stop working when David did what he did in 2 Samuel 11. But God, as God is prone to do, redeemed David and kept his promise. Well, that was the first story. If you didn't know that story, maybe you know this servant, this story. A servant came up to Peter and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean, weren't you? You remember how that story unfolds? This is the story of Peter, the fisherman who, lost, who left everything to follow Jesus, who heard Jesus preach, who watched Jesus heal, who spoke up to confess, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The one to whom Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, your confession. This is the Peter who sat at the table during communion and looked at Jesus and said, though everyone else fall away because of you, I will never fall away. This is the Peter who ripped the sword out of its sheath when the Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus, who lobbed off the ear of Malchus to defend Jesus. And now that Peter stands in a courtyard warming himself by a fire when a young servant girl says, Hey, weren't you with Jesus of Galilee? And, Jesus, and Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. Another girl walks by and says, Hey, this man was with Jesus the Nazarene. The Nazarene. Peter says, I don't know that man. And then a group of bystanders ask, Certainly, you too are one of them. Your accent betrays you. And Peter says, I do not know that man. And then Peter remembered when a rooster crowed. I've often wondered how many mornings Peter woke up to the sound of a rooster crowing and reminding him of his greatest failure. Jesus told Peter at communion, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But Jesus said, when you return, strengthen your brothers. God did not dismiss Peter's failure. But it did not define Peter either. On a seashore... John tells how Jesus looked at Peter and asked him three times, Do you love me, Peter? A friend, preacher of mine, a preacher friend of mine, John Curtis, said, Jesus doesn't ask Peter, Do you love me? Because Jesus needs to know. He asked because Peter needs to know. Peter becomes the one who in Acts chapter 2 stands up and preaches the gospel in its entirety for the first time ever. Peter's the one who says, you men of Israel, 
hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man proved among you by God through signs and miracles that he did in the midst of you, you have taken him by wicked hands of crucified and slain. And it's Peter who, when the crowd says, what do we do? It's Peter who says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. It's Peter who God says, hey, I want you to go talk to Cornelius, this Gentile, and usher Gentiles into the kingdom. Because God did not define Peter by his greatest failure. He redeemed Peter in spite of his greatest failure. This is what I want you to hear this morning. God created you to be far more than whatever your greatest failure suggests you are. That whatever you've done in your life, however you've failed in life, no matter how many headlines it's been splashed across or how many people know about it, the message of Genesis 1 is still true. You are created in the image of God. And it's not just true for you, it's true for everybody else who has terrible failures. They still are image bearers of God. So write these down or just listen to these briefly. This message is scattered throughout all of Scripture, not just in David's life and not just in Peter's life. It is the whole sum of Scripture in the story of redemption. To an entire nation of people, God said in Isaiah 44, 22, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning. Return to me, I have redeemed you. He said that to a nation who walked away in idolatry. And the New Testament time and time again tells this same story. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Don't you know that evildoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers nor men who have sex with men nor thieves nor greedy nor drunkards nor slanders nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God does not dismiss our failures. But, verse 11, that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of God. You are not defined by your failures, but by the redemptive purpose to which God saves you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You are not whatever your failure says you are. You are created as an image bearer of God. One of the greatest beloved hymns in all of English hymnody is probably the song Amazing Grace. Do you know who wrote that song? 
Someone who probably would be canceled by our culture. Someone for whom no redemptive value is believed to be. It was written in 1772 by John Newton. As a young boy, Newton's mother taught him the family's faith, expected him to go into ministry. But John's mother died when he was young. At the age of 11, he joined his father, who was a captain of a ship. At the age of 17, he joined the British Navy, eventually deserted, was caught, put in irons, whipped in public. After his release, he signed on to work on a British slave ship and was instrumental in moving countless slaves from Africa to England. One author described John Newton like this, with a whip in one hand and a gun in the other, often given to drunkenness and lust, he sank into the deepest depths of sin. At the age of 23, he nearly lost his life in a storm. And because of that, through some reflection and reading and time, John Newton eventually gave up slave trading and became a minister. He said of himself, Have you known, Had you known my conduct, my principles, and heart, how little would you have imagined that such a one was reserved to be such an instance of providential care and exuberant goodness of God? So the next time you sing the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. John Newton, a former slave trader, is the wretch who wrote those words. And I'm guessing all of us have sung it, but few of us have connected that deeply. I want you to hear me again this morning. You are created in the image of God. Nothing you have done, nothing you could ever do, could change the truth of those words. Your greatest failure does not redefine you. You are an image bearer of God. And that means that the brother or sister beside you, around you, or that friend or neighbor out there who has failed just as miserably, they still carry the image of God. Treat them accordingly. Treat them as the redemptive possibility that God saw in David, that God saw in Peter, that God sees in you. In the name of Jesus, we offer the invitation of Christ, who came to redeem all of creation and all the brokenness, the one through whom Paul said, the old is done away and the new is here. If you need to become a Christian today to be redeemed and washed, everything is ready to make that possible. And if you need to come back to the Lord, He still will redeem. Please come while we stand and sing together.